Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, a ProPublica report on what happens after medical errors. The harm is not being acknowledged, it's not being apologized for, and in many cases, the patients are also getting billed for it. Why the medical device tax is such a hot potato. Because they cannot change what they bill Medicare, they can't really pass that tax along to consumers, which is what they would normally do. How a rice byproduct is being tested as a way to prevent malnutrition in babies. The infants grew faster, their cognitive processes improved. Helping new immigrants with mental health issues. The risk of suicide in the Bhutanese refugees is about three times the risk in other refugee groups. And how decluttering could benefit your health. It is never about the stuff. It's never about the stuff. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with new evidence in a debate that's been going on for years, whether a doctor should apologize after a medical error, whether that just sets him or her up for a lawsuit, or actually diffuses the situation in an act of taking personal responsibility. Several years ago, a nonprofit journalism group, ProPublica, created an online questionnaire to gather patient stories of what errors occurred and where and how they were handled. Then Johns Hopkins School of Medicine analyzed the first year of those stories, a total of 236 cases, to see what themes emerged. The results of that joint study were published in the Journal of Patient Safety. ProPublica reporter Marshall Allen told me about the findings. The main findings were that about one in 10 patients who have been harmed even has that harm voluntarily acknowledged by the medical provider or the medical facility. And then only about 1 in 10 also receives an apology. And in about a third of the cases, the patients were also billed for the harm they suffered. And the average bill uh, that they reported, or the average cost that they reported having to pay was about $14,000. So the harm is not being acknowledged. Uh, It's not being apologized for. And in many cases, the patients are also getting billed for it. So the theories behind why no apologies... You know, there's a lot of theories about that. I mean, one is that medical providers are afraid of lawsuits, and so they think that, you know, if they show any um, remorse or acknowledgement uh, or apologizing for the harm, it will be seen as some form of liability, and so they don't apologize. The trouble with that line of reasoning is that there's a lot of evidence out there now that shows that when doctors or hospitals apologize for what's happened, it actually decreases the amount of lawsuits that are filed, and it also decreases the amount that gets paid in lawsuits. So I think that's a, it's an unfounded fear, but I think that's one of the main fears. It's also just a very awkward thing to talk about. You know, I mean, these medical injuries and errors, they're not, you know, these are not maliciously done things. I mean, there may be a surgical error or a hospital-acquired infection. It's not like the intent of anybody in the healthcare system is, generally speaking, the intent is not to harm. The intent is to help people. Uh, but when things are not done well or when mistakes are made, then, of course, people get harmed. Now, did you collect any documentation that these respondents were actually harmed, or were you just taking their word for it? Well, you know, it's a self-reported questionnaire, so that's pretty obviously a limitation of it. I mean, you have to say, well, these are people who self-reported this. And the, um, the information that was used in this study um, did not include contacting any of the people or obtaining any documentation. So the, on the Johns Hopkins side with the study they did, they just took the self-reported information that was in our questionnaire. On our side, there's a lot of these stories that we follow up on for our own journalism or we share stories with other media outlets. Again, this is always with the permission of the patient who shared their information. And with dozens of them, I've followed up with them. I've gotten their medical records. 
if I ever write a story about any of these folks, I always contact the medical providers and get their side of the story. We have a lot of things uh, like medication errors, a lot of surgical errors, lots of uh, hospital-acquired infections, which don't necessarily sound that bad until you actually talk to someone who's had one. And those are life-threatening infections that cause days or weeks of follow-up in the hospital. And then also those are infections that can stay with someone for a lifetime. You can become more susceptible to the infection recurring. So it's really, really devastating uh, injuries and infections and errors that these patients are suffering. Any particular story or stories that really you think illustrate the common patient experience after a medical error occurs? Any ones that really yeah. kind of stick in your mind? Sure. I mean, there's there are several. I mean, one uh, that I, uh, for a woman I talked to named Carol LaRocca in Las Vegas, I remember she got a surgical side infection after a procedure, a routine procedure she had in the hospital. And, you know, unfortunately, she was a Medicare patient, but her Medicare uh, coverage did not cover the type of antibiotic that she needed to recover from the infection. And so she got billed about $5,000 to pay for these antibiotics she needed to treat the infection that she picked up in the hospital. And this is an older woman living on a fixed income. She didn't have enough money to pay the bills, and so she got sent to collections and had collectors uh, hounding her <laughs> to pay for the medication that she needed to treat the infection that she unfortunately got while she was in the hospital. That's a pretty common thing. You know, um, the hospitals uh, or the doctors will say, well, you can't prove that you got the infection in the hospital. And so, therefore, um, they just stick the patient with the bill or the patient's insurance company. So I would say that's probably the most common, only because infections are the most common problem. The CDC estimates that 100,000 people a year die due to hospital-acquired infections. So it's, it's happening to a huge number of people out there. And it seems like a lot of attention is being paid. I mean, each state reports the preventable medical errors that happened every year. There's a big push uh, to make hospitals more accountable for these errors and not charge the patients if they get readmitted too early. Do you see any changes since you've been interested in this story? You know, definitely you do, but it's still, I would say, a lot of it is very much on the surface. You know, they still are not tracking all the cases where people get harmed while undergoing health care. So just take something like knee replacements and hip replacements. I mean, those happen uh, probably about a million times a year in this country. Someone gets a knee replacement or a hip replacement, and uh, they're not really tracking the outcomes of how these patients are doing. They're not really tracking how many of them suffer infections, uh, how many have to get readmitted, some places are tracking it, some places are not. So it is sort of alarming. There, there are good things happening, and there's certainly more awareness of it, but it's also alarming to see actually how little is done in terms of tracking the harm to patients. I'm speaking with Marshall Allen, a reporter for the ProPublica organization who covers health care and patient safety. You're still requesting people to fill out the questionnaire. Do you see an increase in interest after you've publicized this round of findings? You know, this latest story um, showed kind of what we're doing with the questionnaire. Um, and, you know, there are researchers at Johns Hopkins and other institutions who are obtaining the data from us. Again, this is only with permission from the patients who have shared it. We don't, we don't share anything that patients don't want us to share. So our patient harm questionnaire can be found online. You can just Google ProPublica patient harm questionnaire. But we really are urging people to, uh, to complete it, and it helps us with our journalism. Um, as we identify these trends, we'll continue to write about them. It helps us identify individual patient stories to follow up on. And then again, I think maybe even the most important part is that when medical researchers can study it, then they can produce academic research that shows up in the medical journals and then that's getting the information to the audience that needs to hear it the most in a manner that communicates clearly to them, you know, through the, meta, through the academic journals. And it has a lot more credibility that way, too. Well, Marshall Allen, thank you so much for doing this and for talking with us today. Thank you. And again, I just urge people to please uh, fill out that questionnaire. It would be a huge help to us. And I really appreciate you having us on your show. Marshall Allen is a reporter with the ProPublica organization, which covers health care and patient safety. We'll put more information on our website. You can find it by going to soundmedicine.org.
Turning now to how we pay for health care. Ever since the Affordable Care Act was passed, one of the prime targets for lobbyists has been the tax on medical devices, such as implants and scanners. The criticism has been that the tax would cost jobs. Recently, the Congressional Research Service came out with evidence suggesting that might not be the case after all. We asked Sound Medicine's health policy analyst, Dr. Aaron Carroll, to give some perspective. When the Affordable Care Act was placed, there was sort of a movement to try to get all the different healthcare sectors to try to uh, pay for some of it, because part of the argument being made was, we're going to bring you you know, tens of millions, perhaps, new people who have insurance. They're going to be new customers, and a lot of the money paying for their care is going to come from the public sector. And if we're going to mandate that all these people buy your stuff, then that's a windfall for you. So you should pay some of that back to help us defray the cost of the bills. And so pharmaceutical companies wound up kicking some money in um, through through rebates and other concessions for Medicare and uh, closing the donut hole. And the insurance companies made some concessions with respect to how things would be billed. And the hospital associations made some concessions with slowdowns in Medicare reimbursement. And the medical device companies took a tax because there was no way to sort of get a hook into them otherwise. So it's a flat out excise tax. Now, it being an excise tax, and because they cannot change what they bill Medicare, they can't really pass that tax along to consumers, which is what they would normally do um, with any kind of new tax or fee. Is, is you know find you know increase the cost of the, the what they're selling, and that would be paid for in the end by consumers. But because of the way it's structured, they can't. They have to really sort of suck it up. They can't raise their prices to Medicare. Medicare is not going to increase the reimbursement, and therefore this really does come out of their end. So that's a legitimate argument on their end. However, the argument is still that they will get many, many, you know, millions theoretically of new customers or potential customers, and that is where the money is supposed to come from. And given that many medical device companies in the past have had pretty impressive, um, you know, profit margins, uh, certainly much higher than you would see from an insurance company, um, that they have some room to absorb this cost, that they have done very well through healthcare in the United States. And so that is the argument for keeping the tax. Of course, no one likes a tax. Businesses don't like a tax. We have a lot of medical device companies in Indiana, so there's a local flavor to this. And they are struggling very hard to try to get Congress to repeal it and saying that it's bad for business, it's bad for the companies, it's bad for the employees, it's bad for the economy. Um, And they've had minor success in that sense, and that every once in a while you think that there might be room for movement, as it could be a concession. The problem is that, of course, there's so little compromise in Congress these days that who are they trading it with? I mean, what what are they going to get in exchange for it? Many Republicans are still very loath to make any kinds of changes to the Affordable Care Act because it can be seen as accepting that it is the law um, and that it's not going to be repealed. And so... They have not had the success that they would like, and and it has not at this time been repealed in any way. And the the fear was um, jobs would be lost. Mm -hmm. Um, The medical device companies would have to figure out a way to handle this tax, and so jobs would go away and the economy would suffer. Have we been able to measure the impact so far? Well, of course, it differs by company to company. Mm -hmm. Some companies have done well. Some companies have done badly. Um, And so, you know, you can cherry pick your results and say, you know, that this one is proving that that's true. This one is proving that that is not true. I don't think at this time there's been any kind of major movement that would prove one way or the other. I mean, I can read competing papers even that can cite um, statistics that show that this has either been terrible for the medical device companies or that it has barely touched them at all. And in fact, that they're still doing spectacularly well. Mm So, you know, time will tell. But it is hard to get around sort of the general consensus of that everyone was going to have to pay a bit in some way. And this is the way that the device companies were going to have to pay. And it didn't seem like all medical, I mean, certain medical devices um, aren't taxed. No, and there's, there's retail exceptions, um, you know, in the sense of like stuff that's being sold in CVS or a drugstore. Like store. A, eyeglasses, that's not sort everything. Of thing? Exactly. Yeah, okay. it's, it's not it's not everything. Um, but it is reasonably comprehensive for things that were being paid for by, you know, health insurance or, you know, billed through a hospital or things like that, that it, it is going to be this this excise tax and it is, you know, a couple percentage points and that is not it is real money. You know, it was going to add up to like, you know, tens of billions of dollars over a decade, and I'm sure it's going to go up in the future. And, you know, all money going out of the economy is is harmful theoretically to business. They don't want to lose a single penny. So um, when times were tough, there was a good argument to be made. The economy, however, is improving, and it's getting harder to make the argument that, you know, that 
the Affordable Care Act and its quote-unquote taxes are killing the economy um, when we're doing so much better than many other countries are doing. And there's been some significant growth recently as to, to how everything is going. Conversely, then, would the loss of this source of funding pose a serious threat to the survival of the Affordable Care Act? No, absolutely not. And, okay. the, the, you know, certainly that's why I think people have been willing to talk about and negotiate with. And I've been on record on, on this show multiple times as saying, I think the employer penalty, for instance, isn't good in the incentives that it sets up for the economy either, and then I wouldn't mind seeing the employer penalty go. And that is the same argument. It would just result in the loss of some, you know, probably tens of billions of dollars over a decade, and we really would be fine. And the truth of the matter is that the argument is the same for the medical device tax. It is, again, however, the slippery slope of, well, if we get rid of this tax, then why not the, why should the pharmaceutical companies have to pay? Why should the insurance companies have to pay? Why should the hospital systems have to pay? And at, at this time, there's sort of been this shared collective sigh of, well, we have to make sure that everybody pays. I think less than that, however, are the political problems. It, it is more that um, I think you probably could see this traded away as a bargaining chit uh, in exchange for some other major policy initiative, perhaps, that maybe Democrats would want to go forward. But that would require, one, compromise, and two, acknowledging that, okay, we're fine with some parts of the Affordable Care Act, we just want to change it a bit. And there are still too many Republicans, I think, who don't want to take that stance, who really are just for outright repeal and don't want to start talking about piecemeal changes to it. So in in, in short, then, if, if certain medical device companies are really, this is the proverbial rock and a hard place, yes, right? Yes, they are stuck in the same way that the AMA sometimes gets stuck, in the same way that the pharmaceutical companies sometimes get stuck, in that uh, compromise in the Affordable Care Act does not yet to be does not yet appear to be a large political winner um, for many politicians in the United States. The Democrats don't want to weaken it by by changing you know how much money is going to be coming in, which of course would look terrible for the deficit. And Republicans, many of them, don't want to change it because that would look like a capitulation to the idea that that it's here to stay and that we're going to tweak it. And also, again, it's important to remember Democrats aren't going to pass that kind of change without something major being given to them in return. And and no one is clear what that would be. Oh, one last question, a personal note. And remember when um, the Affordable Care Act was passed um, and you were talking about it then, did you imagine you'd be talking about it, could pretty much talk about it I, every I, day since I then? I still joke that I remember back when it was passed and I, I think I turned to a, my wife and I still remember talking to a colleague as well and being like, well, I guess that's it. You know, you know, <laughs> sort of all this excitement about my talking about this is over. And while you know, I have to find something new to focus on, I, my God, no, 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 no. It's going nowhere. I expect we will be talking about this for many, many years to come. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank Do you. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Carroll, thanks. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a professor of the IU School of Medicine and director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research. One, two, three, four. <laughs> One, two. Let me tell you. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 1,600. When young people can't remember what they did at the bar last night, they might want to check YouTube. In a new study, researchers typed in words like drunk and hammered, then analyzed the most popular videos that came up. Roughly 1,600 people 1600? gave each video a like, compared to just 33 dislikes. I have to agree with the researchers that a lot of these videos are funny. Well, their words were, humor was juxtaposed with alcohol use. Drunk people were falling downstairs, stumbling into fountains, and walking into lampposts, and passed out bros were covered with magic marker insults. Surprisingly though, very little throwing up, nor did I see any trips to the ER or the funeral home after serious mishaps. That was a problem for the researchers. These videos showed the silly side of drunkenness, but seldom the aftermath. But to be fair, this is the policy on wacky home video shows on TV, too. The public tunes in for the injuries, not the recuperation. That was the number 1600, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up. 
how a former byproduct of the world's most common food is being used to fight malnutrition. It contains all the antioxidants and phytonutrients that you just do not find in wheat and soybeans and corn. And later, why getting rid of piles in your kitchen table, not to mention that crouching in the basement, might be good for your health. I recently went into a home. The clutter was maybe seven foot deep, and the mother said there's a piano in there somewhere, but I haven't seen it for 17 years. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Eric Metcalf with this week's health news headlines. The FDA has issued a caution to men who are using testosterone therapy. In recent years, the number of men using prescription testosterone has increased steeply. However, these medications are only approved for men with low levels of the hormone due to certain medical problems. The FDA is requiring drug makers to note the approved uses on testosterone product labels. They will also need to mention the potential increased risk of heart attack and stroke linked to testosterone therapy. You may not catch the flu as often as you think. A new study found that children have the flu, on average, every two years. But starting at the age of 30, adults only come down with the flu about twice per decade. If you're under the weather more often, some of those cases could be other types of illnesses that feel like the flu. Benign thyroid nodules don't appear to be a serious concern in most cases. Researchers followed nearly 1,000 people with these common growths for five years. The nodules grew in only 15% of people and shrank in 19%. The researchers found cancer in fewer than 1% of the growths. Experts say these findings can offer some assurance to people with these nodules and guidance for doctors on just how closely they need to be monitored. Finally, if you bought expensive gluten-free pizzas during the year, you might get some relief at tax time. People who have a medical need for gluten-free food due to celiac disease, along with a doctor's note, may be able to deduct the extra cost of these items. But as always, discuss your specific case with your doctor and your accountant. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Eric Metcalf. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. What if you could use a byproduct of one of the world's most common foods to address the chronic malnutrition that grips 165 million children every year? We have done what nobody's been able to do before. We have been able to reverse chronic malnutrition, remediate it. Dr. Glenn Sullivan is the co-founder of Sustainable Nutrition International, or SNI. His firm just completed a two-year trial in Guatemala. They were testing a nutritional supplement that can be given to pregnant women and babies at risk for malnutrition. This supplement powder is made from rice bran, the thin outer coating that's removed to make white rice. It contains all the antioxidants and phytochemicals and phytonutrients that you just do not find in wheat and soybeans and corn. But it's locked in so very tightly that it's not available in the human digestive system. That's because bran from rice is not in a form that the gut can digest, like wheat or oat bran. And that's what Dr. Sullivan has been working on for years, coming up with a way to unlock those nutrients so they are what's called bioavailable. In other words, in a form that the human gut can digest and use. Most of our nutrients, the vitamins and minerals we take, a very large portion of it passes through the GI system without ever being utilized. So bioavailability is the key. When you extract that, those phytonutrients, using the technology that we developed and have patented, you end up with a fine powdery product, about the same granular texture as sugar, but it's all nutrients and some fiber, digestible fiber. So... Back to the trials. They involved women in their last trimester through the end of the time they breastfed their babies. Pregnant mothers consumed 40 grams, or about three tablespoons per day, of a supplement called Nutri-ISO. She can put it on food she already eats. She can put it in a water-based, milk-based product uh, that she consumes. Uh, how she consumes it is not really important. Babies were fed the supplement mixed with water to the consistency of thin baby cereal. The infants had heavier 
body mass, larger growth. They grew faster. Their cognitive processes improved. We were able to quantify using World Health Organization measuring techniques and software programs to monitor we were able to truly remediate chronic malnutrition at that age. So we are now in a program in 2015 where we are uh, going further back into the pregnancy period and carrying it all the way through lactation and the first six months after the child is off of uh, breastfeeding. One challenge, making sure there is clean water to mix with the powder. So SNI is looking for ways to install purification systems in every community where the trials are continuing. The next trials will try to replicate phase one and include several measurements published by the World Health Organization to test cognitive abilities. If those trials end well, Glenn Sullivan and his company will be looking to ramp up production. Right now, Nutra-ISO is being manufactured in South Dakota, but the goal is to move production to Central America. What has captured the world's attention in the major organizations is we have validated the capacity to deliver bioactive nutrients in a bioavailable manner. We now have the World Food Program, the Gates Foundation, UNICEF, all these organizations looking at us very carefully because we're doing something that they all want to see happen in that first thousand days of life. We'll put more information about this on our website. You can find it by going to soundmedicine.org. We can feed all the children in the world. Everything on earth we can do. We can feed all the people. And now to a story about the mental health challenges tied to moving to the United States. For refugees from Bhutan, a tiny country tucked between China and India, making that move has been especially difficult. Because even though Bhutan has been in the news for creating what it calls a national happiness index, it has also had enormous ethnic conflicts between its mostly Buddhist population and neighboring Nepalis who are Hindu. When the refugees arrive in the United States, the situation doesn't get any less complicated. Alex Smith of Heartland Health Monitor in Kansas City, Missouri, has the story of a Kansas program working to help. Making the rounds at a public housing complex in Kansas City, Kansas, community health worker Rixon Wangwo is greeted by cheery voices and faces. As she enters a home, the heavy aroma of chopped onions burns her nose, and she hurries up a short flight of stairs to escape the sting. After gently knocking on a door, she walks in to meet a woman who's bedridden with pain. The woman's condition is not unusual among Bhutanese refugees, says Dr. Joe Lamaster, a University of Kansas professor who worked for a decade in the Himalayas. They went through quite a lot and that has had its mark on them. There's no question about that. For hundreds of years, Nepali people lived and worked in southern Bhutan. But in the early 1990s, a government campaign of harassment and what Human Rights Watch described as ethnic cleansing led tens of thousands of Nepalese to flee to refugee camps in Nepal. In 2006, the United States offered to resettle some of the refugees. And since then, over 75,000 have arrived in cities like Philadelphia, Denver, and Kansas City. Jenga Chetri was 23 when he convinced his family to resettle in the U.S. nearly three years ago. But not long after they arrived, his parents told him they shouldn't have come. At the time, my parents, they blamed me, like, you did a great mistake to bring us over here. Many Bhutanese refugees have had trouble adapting to life in the U.S. As the organizer of a Bhutanese health outreach program, Dr. Lamaster says he's seen lots of suffering among his patients. Within a month of getting here, somebody committed suicide, and we began to become aware of the fact that the risk of suicide in the Bhutanese refugees is about three times the risk in other refugee groups. So we started looking into that. A report released earlier this year by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention highlights the acute problems of suicide, anxiety, and depression among Bhutanese refugees throughout the U.S., though the causes are still unclear. 
The CDC says the problems may be related to social isolation, substance abuse, or even trauma from torture they endured in Bhutan. But when LeMaster and his team tried to address the refugees' mental health problems, they found that cultural stigma associated with even the idea of mental illness made the work nearly impossible. They were then telling us, you know, really uh, what we're feeling is not stress so much, we feel pain. Testing showed no underlying medical reasons for their chronic pain, and standard treatments, including physical therapy, painkillers, and psychiatric drugs, didn't help. LeMaster believed the pain was related to stress, and he decided to explore what alternative treatment methods interested the refugees. They tried art therapy, dance therapy, tai chi, a petting zoo, even had some success visualizing cows before landing on a treatment that showed the greatest promise. And then I'm going to ask you to gradually move your awareness away from the breath. Yoga therapist Claudia Cardin-Kleffner specializes in working with people who have chronic health conditions, but she'd never seen a class like the one Dr. LeMaster brought her, one made up of middle-aged to older Bhutanese women refugees. I could not even begin to understand what was going on with these people because they couldn't breathe. Cardin Kleffner says the women were stiff and withdrawn. Many wouldn't make eye contact. Yoga has a long history in the Himalayas, and Nepal in particular. And though many of the refugees were Hindus who had some understanding of yoga, they had little actual experience with it. Just even in getting them to like move their arms, it was like, why should we do this? And then how do we do this was really difficult. Among the class members was Jenga Chetri's mother, Retna. Jenga translates. I had a back pain and I had a leg pain, but right now that is not happening in my body. Dr. LeMaster says that earlier in his career he would have been hesitant to prescribe yoga and he was surprised by the program's success. The women's levels of pain on a standard pain index dropped dramatically. Beyond that, the participants showed major improvements on standard measures of anxiety, depression, and acculturation. Recent studies have shown how yoga helps the brain, heart, and nervous system, but why did it work when physical therapy and medications didn't? That's something LeMaster's still trying to understand, but the answer may have to do with cultural familiarity. What we did notice, though, is that as we went into it, that the concepts resonated with what their basic Hindu worldview was. So there was nothing in it that jarred them. Whether it was the yoga or mere coincidence, there hasn't been a suicide among the Kansas City refugees since LeMaster instituted the program, and he thinks it could be used to help struggling Bhutanese in other cities. Now he's exploring how yoga and other culturally specific practices could be used to help additional immigrant groups. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Alex Smith. Alex Smith is a reporter for Heartland Health Monitor, a reporting collaboration on health issues based at KCUR in Kansas City, Missouri. We posted a number of photographs of the people he interviewed for the story. They're on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. Time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. You know those big rubber exercise balls you see in every gym? A new study led by labor and delivery nurses find that using one of those balls can shorten delivery time and the need for a C-section. Jill Dittmeyer has more. Christina Tussie is a clinical nurse specialist at Banner Good Samaritan Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. She and her colleagues know a woman in labor needs to change positions, sitting, standing, and walking to help progress delivery. Like if you're trying to take your ring off, you know, like a ring off your finger, you don't just pull it off your finger. You kind of like twist it around the knuckle to help it slide off. And so that's what the baby kind of needs, different positions. But finding those positions can require some creativity. They already used round exercise balls to help move things along. When you have a patient who is able to do non-pharmacological methods to help with birthing. We use them a lot for helping patients sit on them. But if a woman has an epidural, she loses feeling in her legs. So they decided to find a new use for a uniquely shaped exercise ball. It kind of looks like a peanut in that it's more narrow in the middle and more rounded on the end. And that was, it fit really easily between their knees. And we use that to help widen their pelvis. They did a control study with 200 women. Those who used the peanut exercise ball had shorter labor and fewer C-sections than those who did not. So if you put your knees together, it doesn't give as much room, but with the peanut ball, it was comfortable. And when it was just easier than 
what we were using before, which was you never can find enough pillows. And the results were such that their method is becoming a practice. When we found success, we reached out to other banner facilities and we rolled it out system-wide, which was about 15 or 17 other facilities that had a women infant services department. And we also were able to buy them balls for their labor and delivery department, and they also used it. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We're going to get a little bit off the subject of traditional medical research and double-blind studies and the rest and talk about messy houses. More precisely, how messy houses could be linked to weight and how getting control of one can help get control of the other. Peter Walsh is the author of the new book, Lose the Clutter, Lose the Weight. And welcome to Sound Medicine. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Barbara. Well, you may be the first, and I am sure you're the first, decluttering expert we've ever had on our program. So first, we should probably get a sense of what you do. In your job as a declutterer, how would you characterize the messiness in the homes you visited? My background is actually in educational psychology and health promotion, and I fell into this job about 15 years ago, um, I was asked to actually work on a show as the organizer for the learning channel called Clean Sweep. And the thing that had fascinated me with organizational change, initially in businesses and then in homes, was the fact that it is never about the stuff. It's, it's never about the stuff. And it, it's fascinating that when you, if I go to a dinner party, for example, or I'm introduced to someone, immediately there's, oh, you should speak to my mother or my brother or my sister or my best friend, that this, this dealing with clutter, this dealing with the excess stuff in our homes and our lives touches so many people and affects them at a whole lot of levels that is never about the stuff. And we're, we're a health show, so in your new book, Lose the Clutter, Lose the Weight, you point out some of the connections between our weight and the state of our homes. I'd like to discuss some of these links. You know, I, I am not a doctor, and I am not what I call an ist. I'm not an exercise physiologist. I'm not a nutritionist. But what's been interesting for me, and this is the genesis of the book, was that I discovered that when I helped people declutter their personal spaces and move the clutter from their homes, that they very much took on a different approach to how they functioned in their space. And it's, you know, from an argument of common sense, I guess, that you, you can't make your best choices, you can't make your healthiest choices in a cluttered, messy, disorganized home. And so I was inundated with people saying, I decluttered my space, I felt better, my family relationships and so on improved, and I started making better health choices and I noticed my weight started to decrease. So about a year ago, um, I decided to pursue this with my publisher, Rodale, to bring in a lot of research and a lot of more scientific kind of information, I guess, to support what for me was anecdotal. And interestingly, we began to discover by speaking with specialists, with academics and researchers, that that in homes where there is a higher incidence of clutter, that there is a much greater chance of people struggling with obesity or their weight, and that there is a much higher level of stress in those homes, and that seems to contribute much more to a whole lot of physical, mental, and lifestyle problems, one of which is weight. If there is not a very conscious health plan in the home, like a diet and exercise plan, let's say the meal plan, for example, what I see happen is that 
when people come home at the end of the day, when they're not organized, when their home is not supporting their health goals, their health and wellness goals, that when they get home and they put the key in the door, if that is the moment that they start thinking about their health choices, their meal choices, their food choices for them and their family, then inevitably they will default to the easy choice. And the easy choice at that stage is either packaged food, which is not the healthiest choice, or much more often takeout meals, which we see the increase of that kind of substantially across the country, in the Western world in fact. So this need for organisation feeds very directly into the choices that people are making into their homes and that has a massive impact on their weight. So in your book, you're talking about messy kitchens or crowded dining rooms. Um, but it, does it have to be those specific rooms that affect weight, or is it just clutter no, in general? No, because I start from the clutter area, that's where my basic expertise is grounded. The plan is in four parts. It's a six-week plan, and simply described, each week looks at a different room in your house to help you basically kickstart getting rid of the stuff that is, I guess, impeding you or dragging you down or cluttering your space. So that's one component. Each room of the house is covered in the six weeks. I've worked with dietitians to develop a very simple meal plan that covers six weeks, great healthy choices for every meal that situates you pretty much within about the 1,400 calorie a day level, kind of right in, in that area. Um, and this has been developed by dietitians, checked and rechecked, and has stood up to scrutiny, and I'll come back to that in a moment. There's an exercise plan based initially around walking and using just the, the objects that you have in your home to increase flexibility and get you moving. That's been developed by an exercise physiologist. And then there's a mindfulness component and that level of mindful meditation or being focused and, and very concretely in the moment is a strong component here. So there are these four pieces to the six-week plan. We ran a test panel of uh, 25 people through the program just to see how it would work, and the results were pretty uh, amazing. We saw an average weight loss of about 10 pounds per person, the most weight loss in the, in the six-week period was 20 pounds and a decrease in waist size of about three inches and in hip size of about two and a half inches. And in the six months since we ran the test panel, most of those people have gone on to lose much more weight, in a couple of cases up to 50 pounds total, and kept their home decluttered and organized. I'm speaking with home organization expert and author Peter Walsh about the links between a messy home and a high number on the bathroom scale. When somebody um, tends to clutter their home, I mean, is there certain rooms that are most affected? It's slightly the wrong question. Okay. And, and it's, it's more about the type of clutter rather than a room. Mm, okay. I think certainly in terms of, of meal choices, food choices, certainly the kitchen and dining room are problematic. But what I see in people's homes is that people struggle with either what I call memory clutter, that's the stuff that reminds them of an important person or achievement or event from the past, or they struggle with what I call I might need it one day clutter. And that's the stuff that people hold on to in anticipation of a whole lot of imagined futures. And that kind of clutter is, I think, way more prevalent throughout the house than any particular room. Okay, so is it does that match with moods, whether you're collecting, holding on to memories or are you holding yeah, you on? Know, it, it's really fascinating to me, and, and again, this has not been pursued, but the, the idea of memory clutter is that it reminds us very much and holds us in the past, and I might need it one day is stuff that holds you or, or propels your thoughts very much to the future. And I think it's a very interesting coincidence that anxiety is very often described as an undue preoccupation with the future and depression is described as an undue and maudlin kind of concern with things past. And it, it's fascinating to me, and again this has not been pursued in terms of research, that I think that those two kinds of clutter 
actually are physical manifestations of two of the, the biggest mental health issues in, the, in this country and, and certainly in the Western world, anxiety and depression. And it's interesting that in the research for the book, we found that, that overwhelmingly the test panel subjects had very high anxiety levels around their clutter and by working through this program, we saw those drop pretty substantially. And Peter, how much science backs up this link between um, excess weight and excessive clutter? Look, we spoke to probably 10 researchers across the country, the, the, the leading experts in extreme clutter, uh, David Tolden at Harvard and, and Randy Frost. We used some of his, uh, his material there are all of the, the scoring mechanisms have been pulled from the top researchers in the United States. And I think the jury is still out a little, but I think the research is, as I say, with all of these top researchers, is tending very much towards supporting what I would say very kind of humbly is my anecdotal evidence. So what does it mean to declutter your home? I mean, I'm thinking of Architectural Digest and they have those wonderful modern homes. <laughs> Nothing but a vase in the living room. It's, look, it's not, no, it's absolutely not me. You know, the, look, for me, it, it's fascinating when we talk about clutter. We use words like, I went into that room, there was so much stuff I couldn't breathe oh my God, you go into that space, you feel suffocated. I walk into my bedroom and I feel like I'm buried. It's very interesting that we use those words about clutter in an analogous way that we don't use them anywhere else. And I think that's because instinctually we can feel that too much stuff in our homes actually sucks the life from us. And I think clutter or too much stuff affects us psychologically, it stresses us. Socially, we're embarrassed to have people over. Spiritually, we can't focus or be motivated. Financially, it sucks our resources. Relationship-wise, because it causes friction in our homes. So for me, the whole issue of the stuff in our home that we invest so much in, in terms of bringing us happiness, actually may well be at the root of really causing pretty deep both psychological, social, and, and increasingly physical problems to our health. The program essentially says, look, start small. Here are small steps that you can take every day to declutter your home and really create the kind of space that doesn't stress you, that makes you feel more focused, more relaxed, more motivated. That's step one. Concurrently with that, here is a very simple meal plan that anyone can adopt that doesn't encourage you to go out and buy all crazy, wacky foods. It's very simple food choices. And at the same time that you're doing this, the simple act of decluttering gets you more motivated up, moving and physical. But here is an added plan that simply starts first up with just walking around the block each day. Here is a very simple exercise plan that builds over the six weeks just to increase your moving and I ask you initially just to spend five to ten minutes a day sitting quietly to focus on what it is you want from your home and from your life to improve your health and wellness. When we say getting rid of the clutter, you know, decluttering, um, I, I would imagine that there's, you know, there's certain ways to dispose of things. You can give them to family. You can, you know, give it to goodwill. You can put it on the curb and, and wait for the trash pickup. But I would imagine that there's, it's kind of different between holding on to memories and holding on to things you might need. I mean, how do you, how do you um, help people decide how they actually get rid What's of this important. stuff? Yeah. The memory clutter is the most problematic for people. And I think particularly for, you know, I'm in my late 50s now. You know, one of my parents has passed away. My mum is 92 and I'm starting to inherit things from them. And I think many of us are in that same boat. There's a whole lot you can do. But the simplest tip when people ask me about this is I say, if you're holding on to everything memory-wise, when everything is important, nothing is important and so it's really important this simple technique find what I would call the five treasures the five most important things that make your heart sing 
in terms of your memory stuff. In my case, it's my dad's World War II war medals. It's a stupid toy my mother gave me when I was young. And you take those items and treat them with honor and respect in your home. Display them in a place in your home that treats them with honor and respect. So when you look at them, your heart sings. And then for the rest of the stuff, you can't hold on to everything. Start making judicious choices about letting the rest of the stuff go. Okay, quick last question. Some of the things that just absolutely stand out in your mind of places you've been are just strange things that people have collected in excessive amounts or just some of the out-of-place stuff. I recently went into a home. I stepped into a recreation room, a family room. The clutter was maybe seven foot deep in the room, and the mother of the home said, there's a piano in there somewhere, but I haven't seen it for 17 years. <laughs> okay. Peter Walsh, <laughs> thank you. They said now we all feel better about our clutter. Thank you so much. We'll end right there. Peter Walsh, thank you so much. Barbara, thank you so much. It was a delight to chat with you. The book is Lose the Clutter, Lose the Weight. And full disclosure, sound medicine producer Eric Metcalf worked with Peter Walsh on that book, and he has a very tidy desk. Sitting in this messy room, mom says I should clean it up, gotta pick my school books off the floor and put them And that's it for this week's program. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook and submit suggestions for future shows on our website, soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast so you can listen anytime that's convenient to you. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program and chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And the executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI. Fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.